Matthew chapter 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as I've said, we have reached our final beatitude, the end of the beginning for the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We've been looking at this this series of, of blessings, this picture of the ultimate happy, blessed man. And it sort of reaches its climax here where Jesus tells us that the truly happy man is persecuted, hunted, as we said last week, for the sake of righteousness, right? And we talked about hardcore sort of political persecution around the world last week. We, we also talked about spiritual persecution, uh, which is something all believers endure. And the Apostle Peter showed us in his uh, first epistle that spiritual persecution is part of what binds us together with our, our fellow believers around the world. So we've established that persecution is an issue for all of us, at least in some sense or another. But Jesus is so excited about this persecution thing that he wants to tell us more. Uh, He's told us that the kingdom of heaven belongs to the persecuted, uh, those who are hunted for righteousness sake. And then he he now doubles down just in case the crowd wasn't excited as much as he was uh, or or taking him seriously enough. You know, I think it's fairly easy, we all know, to ignore something someone says when we don't like what they're saying. Uh, Most of us have selective hearing. It's something we learn in childhood. Um, But Jesus drives this point home once again with some serious emphasis. He wants there to be no mistake. Persecution is part of the blessing. And today he expands this definition of persecution to include what I'm calling soft persecution. Now maybe that's a funny way of describing it. I don't know. Uh, Soft persecution doesn't sound threatening enough to be worth mentioning. Uh, If I call a person soft... I'm implying that they're not very scary, right? If a politician, we say, is soft on crime, we mean he's a wuss, right? That's basically what we're saying. If I tell you that I have gotten soft, as my doctor was kind of implying this week, it implies that I have become weak and flabby. And yet Jesus takes the time to dedicate two verses to this final blessing, two verses on soft persecution, He gives it a completely separate blessing. Why does he do that? Why is this worth elaborating on? Well, I think he it's because he wants us to know that persecution is a bigger issue than we think, and he also wants us to see that we are connected by suffering, even soft suffering persecution-wise. And not only are we connected with each other within the church, but it also connects us with him, Christ himself. Jesus is saying that all persecution, even the softer forms, they all go on his tab. That's how the ESV words it here, right? It all goes on his account. Now, I said last week, I'm something of a late-night TV junkie. This hasn't changed. Uh, I was talking about all these uh, as-seen-on-TV type ads uh, that make America so great. And um, 
Again, I think TV ads say a lot about the viewing audience and advertisers. You know, they know who's watching, and the ads reflect that. And late at night, they seem to be targeting seasoned citizens and older crowd. And I used to laugh, except now I'm watching. (laughs) What that says about me, I shudder to think. But anyway, part of getting old apparently means watching late night TV and consuming these ads. But I was remembering, as I thought about that this week, that you know I remember when these phone order ads all used to say at the end, sorry, no CODs. I don't know how many of you are old enough to remember that phrase. It's like imprinted on my mind at this point, you know, and it's embedded there. And I never knew what it meant. I remember having to ask my dad once, and he explained what well, means cash on delivery. And the idea was that once upon a time, you could call the hotline and you could order whatever Billy Mays was selling you, And they would bring it to your door, and you could pay cash on the spot. You were essentially buying it on credit, which was obviously a terrible idea because you can't trust people. So anyway, by the time I was a kid, nobody accepted that form of payment, so every one of these ads gave the same warning. Sorry, no CODs. You needed a credit card or something. They needed to know you were good for the money. If you wanted that sham wow or whatever, you had to make a payment first. You couldn't just say, put it on my account. And I was thinking about that. Because in today's beatitude, Jesus, he once again blesses the persecuted, but he says it works, it only works if it's put on his account. It's a funny way of putting it. If I knew he was paying the tab, I would rather he cover pizza or beer or something, but he says the true persecution is what is on his account. That's the ESV's way of wording it. The Greek wording is a little more accurately, perhaps, for my sake. But I like the ESV wording because it made me think of persecution as an actual asset. Something of value that gets deposited in the bank, so to speak. And that's kind of how Jesus seems to be describing persecution. It's a present blessing. It's something that gets stowed away also for the future simultaneously. He says that you are blessed when you are persecuted, meaning it's unavoidable. But he also seems to be implying that it's something that happens during the persecution. And he doesn't describe it as a transaction here. It's not like, well, hey, if you tolerate this, this curse, there will be blessings later. He seems to be saying that you are blessed in the midst of or even because of it. And again, part of what's interesting is how Jesus is expanding this picture of persecution because he uses the word persecution again. But he sandwiches it between two other phrases that focus on words. It's not just persecution. It's reviling and false utterings of evil against you. In other words, Jesus is including slander and mockery in the same list with persecution. Now that's interesting, because again, I think we in the American church, we often think of persecution as something that's happening over there, right? And as I said last week, there is a spiritual dimension to persecution that we all experience uh, in the form of temptation. Jesus was familiar with that. He, he had been tempted in the wilderness. This sermon's coming right on the heels of that. But for the most part, we consider what the church is facing in, say, China. That's real persecution, whereas American Christians have what we might call a persecution complex, right? Uh, thinking everyone's out to get us, but really overstating things. And Granted, I don't think we face, for the most part, institutional persecution by the government, right? Certainly not like we see elsewhere. We could make the argument maybe that when Canada uh, shut down the churches on account of COVID and wasn't even letting them meet outdoors or anything, okay, that might have been overstepping the line a little bit, but it's still not what we would see in, say, China or Afghanistan. Uh, And no one I know of is being arrested for their faith in America, 
Uh, they might get arrested for protesting or something, but it's not so much like for wrong think. You think the wrong things, therefore we're going to arrest you. We do have a First Amendment, and our protections are fairly extensive. We don't deal with anything as extreme as what the early church faced under Nero, let's say. But we often face slander and mockery, don't we? And that's the emphasis here. The emphasis Jesus is putting is on words. Reviling and uttering, these are verbal attacks. And Jesus takes those seriously too. In fact, he puts it in this broader list of persecutions we face. Jesus doesn't make light of soft persecution, is the point. He knows it's very real and far more real for most of us than physical threats are. We are much more likely to be laughed at or mischaracterized or made fun of, and Jesus considers that a form of persecution too. Now, reviling means to attack or criticize or mock. It can sometimes look like laughter at our expense, and of course, sometimes we deserve to be laughed at, if we're honest. And I think that's why Jesus specifies falsely. If the culture mocks us for something true, that's not necessarily persecution. Uh, if you've ever seen the show, I haven't really, but there's a show called Yes, Prime Minister. I think it's from back in the 80s or something, a British sitcom. I've only ever seen one episode of it, and, and it deals with the appointment of a new archbishop, and it mercilessly mocks the Church of England for its internal politics and the false pieties, and it, it's richly deserved, and I laughed heartily, and I didn't feel guilty about it. That was okay with me, but then other times in pop culture, the things are more borderline. Now, I was raised, like many in my generation, on The Simpsons. And for years, they have mocked Christian subculture, right? Uh, Ned Flanders is the annoying neighbor, supposedly the devout Christian, and sometimes they use him to mock elements of Christian culture that I also would mock, you know, the sort of teetotaling extremism or using fake swear words and that kind of thing, you know? And that's fair game, fine. But they also use him to mock actual Christian values at times because it insinuates that all of us are are like him, that we're all that ridiculous. And that's unfair. I think that can be a form of slander. Maybe I take it more personally, too, at this point, you know, Reverend Lovejoy, I mean, the Simpsons pastor, right? His number one defining characteristic is that he's boring. And that's just one comedy show, but I, I think even our dramas, right, they're seldom kind to serious Christians, right? As a rule, the more religious any character is on any show, the more ridiculous they are. Uh, Extremists and puritanical and hypocritical and stupid and usually dangerous. Uh, If you watch police dramas, if a religious person shows up, they're almost certainly either the killer or they made the murder possible somehow. The job of the detectives is to cut through all the religious tomfoolery and figure out the truth which the religious zealots are naturally covering up. I I sometimes watch police mysteries from Europe, because that's what you get on, you know, PBS, British-type shows, and it's amazing that in such an irreligious continent where almost nobody goes to church, it's amazing how so many of the villains are Christian religious fanatics. I'm like, where'd they even find them all? If TV is all you go by and it is for many of us, then your picture of Christians will be that they are backward, ignorant killjoys, stupid, anti-science, stiff, boring, or worse, intolerant, judgmental, and bigoted. 
<clears throat> That's just a taste of how popular culture in the West treats Christendom, and I think you've all seen it. This is not controversial stuff. And oftentimes it comes in the form of jokes, but there's an underlying critical spirit, and many times it is unfair and untrue. And because we, <clears throat> as a culture, live on what our screens feed us, that's our image. And you get attacked in other ways, too. Uh, if you've ever tried to watch children's programs on regular television, it is amazing the ads that you will see that are designed to undermine whatever ethics you're trying to inculcate in your children. And it's not limited to pop culture. In America, academia is notoriously hostile to Christianity. I experienced that when I was in college. I had very hostile professors at times. I don't think it's getting any better. Uh, and that's not to say there aren't Christian teachers and professors and students, of course. And it's not saying that it's sinful to go to college, but it's increasingly the case that Orthodox Christian teaching and ethics is officially on the outs on most college campuses. You have to brace yourself for the mockery on campus. I personally know people who can attest the same is true in some public schools. These are not conspiracy theories. I think it is legitimately hard to be a serious, outspoken anyway, Christian in some working contexts in America. It's not illegal to be that. It's just hard. I don't think your faith is going to do you any favors if you're looking to get tenure at a university somewhere. Your faith will not open doors in Hollywood or on television or in most print media. Uh, obeying Christ faithfully is probably not going to help you in any government-related field. I mean, that's just a, a, a small smattering here. But in fact, I, I really think that the more committed to Christ you are, the less likely you will be to have any actual power or influence in American culture today. The more vocal you are about your faith in Christ. And maybe that wasn't always the case, but I think things are changing. And there have also been legal troubles, and I referenced it in passing last week, but you hear about the, these florists and bakers, right, who have been essentially forced out of business in recent years because they refused to do uh, services to gay weddings, right? Uh, now, nobody got arrested necessarily, but there are more than enough lawyers and sympathetic judges and troublemakers out there to make it impossible for you to do business, uh, you hear of parents have, having lost custody of their children for not embracing the new transgender and, uh, identity, and the culture sort of shoves that down your throat. And I'm not saying any of this to try to be political. These are real stories. And while we may not face physical intimidation or the threat of arrest, what I'm saying is, is that we do face character assassination. We face lies about what we believe. We face unfair criticism. We sometimes receive unfairly blame for America's social ills. We face ridicule. We face laughter at our expense. And we face a lot of pressure to keep our faith silent and private. Cancel culture is a real thing. Speaking biblical truth can get you locked out on Twitter or land you in Facebook jail, as they call it. Uh, we see this most often when Christians resist the current sexual ethics of our generation. Nothing will get you canceled quite as quickly as saying no to the current sexual revolution. Now, I did say last week that it's not our job to pick fights willy-nilly. And I still stand by that. But I am sometimes reminded that John the Baptist was beheaded for criticizing Herod. 
And how did he criticize him? He went after Herod because Herod was in a sinful sexual relationship with his sister-in-law. Nowadays, we would say that they were all consenting adults. John the Baptist should mind his own business, maybe. I think if such a thing happened today, Herod wouldn't even need to behead John. Why bother if this happened today? He could just remind everybody, like, look, you can't help who you love, and love wins. And everyone, including many people in the church, would roll their eyes at John, quietly wishing he would just keep his opinions to himself and stop embarrassing us. You see, self-persecution can even come from within in the form of friendly fire. Why is self-persecution so prevalent in America? I could say it's because we're just lucky that the Founding Fathers gave us the First Amendment and that, you know, that way we get out of the worst persecution, right? But I think there's something more insidious going on. I think the reason that we face self-persecution is because it works. The enemy is smart, and he knows what will work against us. Slander and mockery are effective tools against the Western church. Americans are particularly sensitive to this kind of attack because we have bought into the same idolatries of our surrounding culture, right? We do not want to be considered ignorant, backwards, old-fashioned, judgmental, or mean. We want to be cool. We want to be seen as nice. We want to be respected. We want to be good Americans. We want to be well thought of. We want to be thought of as smart and not taken in by fairy tales. We want to think of ourselves as savvy and nuanced and sophisticated. We want to be sexy and hip. We want to think of ourselves as citizens of the world. The last thing we want to be accused of is being out of touch, insensitive, or boring. But there's a reason why the church grows in difficult circumstances. I think the church in a place like Ukraine right now knows what they're risking their lives for. In a way, it's almost easy to see why the church can be resilient in the face of physical threats because they are constantly forced to reckon with eternity. To remember the hope of heaven and the hope of being with Christ, their circumstances are a constant reminder of what really matters. But in America where we sleep in relative safety and comfort, and where the worst thing we're facing is inflation and overpriced gas, we have way more time on our hands for navel-gazing. I think we are a very self-conscious people, very concerned with our public image, with way too much leisure time to fix up our Facebook profiles so that we look good to outsiders so we can impress our teachers and our secular friends about how open-minded we are. We want to live comfortable, middle-class lives. We don't like interruptions, and we don't like taking big risks, because it'll cost us what we want, which is respectability and a reputation for being culturally aware and relevant. None of us wants to put that social status at risk or be the subject of gossip. We don't want to kill the vibe. We don't want to interrupt the party. So it's better not to draw unpleasant attention to ourselves. Far better to be silent and to keep our opinions to ourselves. So when the enemy comes at us with mockery, we retreat faster than 
French infantry. We may not openly deny Christ, but I think a lot of us go to great distances to distance ourselves from parts of Christ that we think will embarrass us, or at the very least, we distance ourselves from his people in the church. Oh, yeah, I'm I'm a Christian. I'm not like those Christians. Allow me to make some distinctions here. In short, the enemy uses soft persecution in this country because it works. And if you doubt that, you can look at the church attendance rates. Shoot, we can think of many of the prodigals in our own lives, right? What made them leave church? Not physical threats. Far more likely that it was shame over Jesus. Sin lures them too, but they find philosophical justification by caving to the soft persecution of their peers. And others stay, and they sit in the pews week after week, but they dare not live out their faith Monday through Saturday because that would be weird and embarrassing. Soft persecution is nasty, and it's effective, and the enemy knows it. The enemy knows he doesn't need the power to have you arrested. All he needs is the power to discourage you and to make you feel stupid. That's more than enough to cripple the faith of many American Christians. And sometimes you see whole churches buckle to the soft persecution of the culture. You know the ones that have the latest political slogans on their marquee and a rainbow flag and everything else. The enemy doesn't need to attack those churches. They're already conforming. Too many professing Christians are so busy protecting our own kingdoms that we don't want to put our little kingdoms at risk by looking ridiculous. There's a line in The Godfather, the one guy says to him, a man in my position cannot afford to be made to look ridiculous. That's how we all kind of feel. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in The Weight of Glory. He says, like a good chess player, Satan is always trying to maneuver you into a position where you can save your castle only by losing your bishop. The temptation of soft persecution is that you can only have the castle of respectability if you lose Christ. Now, it is not my purpose to throw a pity party this morning. I think we've all been discouraged enough by soft persecution in our lives. All of us have been discouraged to see people that we love succumb to soft persecution and walk away from Christ, not because someone threatened them, but because of malicious slander and mockery that they bought into. And I state all this in grave terms because I want you to see how deep the sickness goes. In fact, it goes all the way back to the beginning because there's a reason Satan didn't threaten Eve, did he? No, he used slander. He planted a seed of doubt by questioning the goodness of God. Just words, just a subtle little lie. It probably didn't feel like persecution at all. But it was enough. I'm not here to discourage you. There's hope in this passage. This is, after all, a blessing. You remember that beatitude means blessing. I just want to point out some things that will help us feel blessed as we look at this. Things that will help us rejoice. First off, Jesus says, blessed, happy are you when soft persecution comes. Did you notice how he suddenly got personal. Up until now, all of these blessings, all of the Beatitudes have been generic 
third-person blessings. This is the first time he addresses the crowd directly in the second person. Blessed are you. Last week, I was watching an episode of Alfred Hitchcock with the kids, and like so many of these things, it was an old English gentleman who murders his wife, which is wrong, of course. Uh, But in typical Hitchcockian fashion, he spends the first half of the episode basically making you sympathize with the husband because the wife is so incredibly annoying. And one of the worst and most annoying things about her is that she says everything in the generic third person. She's like, one often thinks one should do such and such, but one mustn't worry oneself, like this kind of thing. And by the end of ten minutes of this, you're thinking to yourself, like, I know murder is wrong, but I get where he's coming from. (laughs) Now, of course, Jesus isn't being annoying like that. That's not what my point is. I just want you to see the contrast. He is personalizing the blessing here. And he doesn't just personalize it to you, the one he's blessing. It's also the first time he directly references himself. Blessed are you when soft persecution comes on my account. He connects you with himself. Now, just for a moment, imagine yourself being in this crowd. You're here probably because Jesus either healed you or else somebody else you know. You just kind of met the guy. You're here to listen to his TED Talk, essentially, right? And Jesus starts talking to them like fellow soldiers. We're in the trenches together. And he says, when you get attacked, it's because of me, and you are blessed. It goes on my account. It doesn't just tie you together with other believers. It ties you together with me. They're not attacking you. They're really after me. So consider it a blessing. Now what Jesus does not say is, don't sweat it. It's nothing compared to what they're going through in Ukraine. No. He doesn't downplay malicious words. Jesus never says, Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words can't hurt you, because that's a lie. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus cares about hurtful words. He knows that wicked words do far more damage than spears. Being laughed at by a friend can destroy your faith where war would not. Words have done more damage to the church than bombs ever could. So Jesus goes out of his way to bless you. And we've all experienced soft persecution, so this is not hypothetical. It's a universal problem. Every disciple of Jesus has felt this at some point. So that's why Jesus switches gears and becomes personal. Blessed are you when this stuff happens on my account. And I can't help but wonder if this original crowd is listening to this sermon and getting squeamish. Like most pastors don't ask you to suffer for their sake, right? So for the first time, these listeners, these disciples, are starting to realize this guy, Jesus, is not just the carpenter's kid from Nazareth. He's not just some healer. He's something more. But Jesus says this is all about him. When you feel like the world is out to get you, it's because they're out to get him. When you suffer persecution, hard or soft, whether it's legal issues, lawsuits and harassment, ridicule by your teachers or professors or mockery by the pop culture and media or criticism by your coworkers, or being laughed at by your siblings or by your friends or whether it's Facebook attacks or being unfriended or being blocked or being gossiped about, that persecution is real. But it's not about you, it's about Jesus. It's on his account. 
Now, Jesus also throws in this comment about how all the prophets were also persecuted, and that's generally true. Many of the Old Testament prophets had a hard time in life. Their entire job was to speak God's word, God's truth, to people who usually didn't want to hear it. Uh, so they preached to very stubborn people, and oftentimes their main audience would be the king, and their job would be to point out to the king all the ways that he was failing to please God. No surprise, then, that they were sometimes killed for their trouble and faced exile at other times. Sometimes they did just face pure mockery, though. There's one great story. George reminded me just this morning. Elisha was once mocked by a gang of young boys, and he cursed them in God's name. And God sent two bears who killed 42 of them, all because they called him an old head. Who says God doesn't care about verbal insults? But the standing accusation against many of the prophets would be that they were essentially unpatriotic because they were always criticizing the home team, so to speak. So they did a thankless job and they lived a lonely existence. And this was true right up to the final Old Testament prophet, which is John the Baptist himself. But Jesus is also engaged in a little bit of foreshadowing here because he too would be persecuted in every way. He had already faced spiritual persecution. We saw that when he was tempted in the wilderness in the, reading, the, the gospel reading last week. And he will face physical, hard persecution when he is arrested in Jerusalem three years from this point. But that only lasts for a couple days, even for, for Jesus, right? This is only a sliver of time on either end, really. In between, he does three years of earthly ministry where he doesn't get beat up or anything, and he experienced every kind of soft persecution throughout that time. He took some serious verbal abuse. I want you to consider what Jesus, the most blessed man, endured. He endured a lot of attacks from religious people, holy people, people who were respected, pious Jews. They accused him repeatedly of being drunk and a glutton. He was accused of having loose morals of being an antinomian. They said he played fast and loose with God's law. People thought he wasn't a patriot because he never endorsed a revolution against Rome. They criticized him for hanging out with sinners, including tax collectors and prostitutes, and I can't imagine that didn't make people whisper. Not to mention the rumors surrounding his family. Is he really Joseph's son? I heard his mom got knocked up, but then I don't know. Even if people accepted the story of his being Joseph the carpenter's son from Nazareth, that town had no great reputation anyway, as Elder Harley pointed out not long ago. Nathaniel spoke for many when he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's a dump. And even among Jesus' friends, you have Peter rebuking him for predicting his own death. Peter was essentially criticizing Jesus for demoralizing the troops. Mary and Martha come running to Jesus only to accuse him of not caring enough to come earlier to save Lazarus. Our brother wouldn't have died if you were here. Heck, Jesus' own mother and siblings attacked his character. In Mark chapter 3, Mary and all of uh, Jesus' siblings chased him down to bring him home because as Mark records it, they were saying he was out of his mind. And even at the very end, in the midst of the physical persecution portion, as Jesus is dying, the final insult is added that even the criminals on the other crosses hurled insults at him. 
There is no soft persecution that you can experience that Jesus cannot relate to. He knew what it was like to suffer slander and mockery and unfair attacks, and I don't believe for a minute that it didn't sting. When you suffer this way, when you are watching others fall away because of these kinds of things too, Jesus says, you are blessed. And it's true because it binds you to him. When your faith is shaken by the hostility of the world around you and you are tempted to doubt God's goodness, but you keep pressing on, Jesus says you are blessed. When people around you, including family and friends, walk away from Christ and you feel alone and tears become your bread, Jesus says you are blessed. Because that's how they persecuted the prophets. And it's how they persecuted him. But finally, perhaps the best reason we should rejoice is the simple fact that Jesus commands you to. This is the first beatitude that comes with an explicit command. There's an implied command in all the others that you should be meek, you should be pure in heart, you should be a peacemaker, etc. But this one comes with a straight-up order from the Lord Jesus Christ, rejoice and be glad. Who are you to disobey that word? And he sweetens the pot. He says that your reward is great in heaven. The place where you will go to be with Jesus is all the more sweet because of what you're going through right now. What a promise that is. To know that there's a reward for enduring even the discouragement of soft persecution, the verbal attacks, the mocking laughter, the evil, unkind words, the slander, the false propaganda, the accusations, the taunting, the teasing. Jesus doesn't say, it's no big deal, get over it. No, he says there's a reward for it. The curses you are facing are a blessing. They're like money in the bank. They will make heaven all that much sweeter. And the reward is not really described here, but I can't imagine that it won't surpass whatever we can picture. You have to remember that your maker knows what he made you to enjoy. And if anyone's going to pick out a worthwhile reward, it would be him. But the main reward is that you will be able to sit with someone who can understand everything you've ever gone through, even the times you wimped out, and he will restore you like he did Peter. And he will wipe your tears and give you courage that will never die. Your reward is great because your reward is Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the promise of the gospel is not a life free from affliction. Far from it. It's a life full of opposition on every side. There is spiritual persecution, there is hard persecution, and there is soft persecution. It's a hard life. But Jesus is your reward. All of that suffering goes on his tab. It gets credited to your heavenly account. And it's much better than a COD because the sin bill is already paid, so everything else is just a bonus. It's gravy. He's got you covered. And one day it will all be worth it. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you as always for your word. We thank you for this sermon that Jesus preached, Lord. And we thank you that you take seriously not only the threats at gunpoint that some believers face in this world, 
but even the insults, the things that sting and that replay in our minds at night and create doubts and sow seeds of doubt. Things that get stuck in our crawl that we can't let go of, things that just hurt, that make our hearts feel heavy. Lord, we thank you that you take those things seriously too, and we thank you that there is a blessing for those who persevere. And we thank you that we have a Savior who has endured all of this and then some. Lord, there is truly nothing that we can deal with that Jesus doesn't know about. We thank you that he persevered, Lord, in ways that we cannot. Lord, give us strength. Help us to live our faith. Help us to endure these things. We ask this for the sake of your Son, and in his name, amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.